Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review. Uh, joining me after a 99-day lockout that's finally over is Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are you doing after the transaction freeze has been lifted, thankfully? I am just... It's been like a hurricane of of moves and transactions. I, if they still used paper, I imagine that just like there would just be paper just everywhere, all over the country, just from all these transactions. It's I, been wild. I think the Royals maybe still do use paper. I think they use fax machines too. I think they that's how they conduct their business. <laughs> uh, also joining us uh, in this flurry of transactions is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, are you keeping up with the hot stove and how hot it is now? Okay, I absolutely love um, this type of activity. Um, traditionally, we haven't had it in baseball. Like, it's a very slow burn. A little stuff gets done in the middle of December when they're in the winter meetings. We get, you know, a little trickle. Um, but nothing nothing like this. And I think this is really exciting for the sport. Like, everybody's really excited to see what's going on. I think I wrote something about this, you know, months ago. Um, or I don't know, a year ago, I don't know, time has no meaning, but I wrote something about this and I'm really excited that it's, it's happening because it's, it's, it's so cool. Like it's fun to see the NBA and the NFL do this. And, uh, and, and by this, I mean, have a flurry of transactions all within like a week or a couple of days. So really happy, happy it's happening for baseball in addition to baseball being back. Yeah. I kind of wish that, you know, if owners, if, if they were to push for something that was kind of bad for players, push for something that like had compressed the 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 free agent window to like a one month period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, you know that that would be exciting at least for fans, you know, like uh, like the I always envy. Yeah, you mentioned NBA and NFL. They have like the the second free agency starts in those sports. Like you have you know woge bombs left and right, and like Adam Schefter reporting big deals all the time. And baseball used to kind of have that in December, and it's, it seems like they've gotten away from that. Uh, I kind of wish they would get back to a little bit it is kind of funny like baseball kind of has this week in the sun where they can get to have these big signings and have this excitement and it comes the week of march madness and nfl free agency started this week so it's like even when baseball has a chance to get the headlines it's like they still have to compete with this other stuff uh we're going to talk about of course all the transactions transactions that happened this week and the royals were you know after it seemed like they weren't going to be involved they were smack dab in the middle of it but i did want to touch upon kind of the, the the labor deal that was reached last weekend and i wish we had got, had a podcast last weekend unfortunately i i timed my vacation for mid-march thinking there's not going to be any news in mid-march <laughs> in baseball other than you know regular spring training games uh little did i know that there would be a lockout for 99 days they would finally come to an agreement uh over the weekend uh, matthew what you know there's a lot we, you know, i have an old article about the, the entire labor deal there's a lot of components there's a luxury tax which um, went up a little bit, not much. Uh, minor league, uh, or excuse me, minimum wage went up for, for players. A little more money for the uh, players in the first three three years of service time. We're going to get expanded playoffs uh, from 10 teams to 12. What kind of stuck out to you with the labor deal? Did the players kind of make out in the end? Did the owners kind of get what they're asking for? And what, what are some changes you like that, that are going to be coming out of the pipe uh, with uh, baseball? I think one of the things that I was kind of surprised about is how much the owners moved in a relatively short amount of time. When you think about it, the 99 days of, of labor lockout, like most of that was because the owners were just were using that time as part of their strategy to, I don't know if they were really trying to break the union, but they were really using uh, these deadlines that they created and the threats 
of canceling games uh, to basically try to get the players to take the deal that they wanted. And then once that wasn't off the table, all of a sudden they moved further in like a week than they had in like the previous 90 days. It was, it was very interesting. I thought that was very interesting. Overall, I think, you know, uh, the players could have, the players should get a better deal than the one that they had. But the thing is, you know, you can't solve everything in one deal. Um, what will happen is in five years, we'll have a new CBA um, where they'll have to negotiate a new one. And, you know, some of the things that they included in this deal, they can build on in order to um, to, to make it better for the players um, and more equitable. I think the owners are still coming out better than the players are if, you know, you have to pick sides. But I think the players are certainly getting some things here that are interesting. And there are some a lot of new things in this deal that I feel like are, are kind of a big kind of a big deal. Um, I think maybe one of the underrated ones um, is the um, uh, the MLB draft lottery, right? Like uh, we have a lottery in in the in the MLB draft. Now it's not going to be as big of a deal as it is in the NBA because of how a number one pick in the NBA can immediately go to your team and immediately you know start to be good. It's not the same in baseball, but I think between the draft lottery and between some of the stuff that kind of cracks down a little bit on service time manipulation, I think what we'll start to see is we'll start to see more teams being more aggressive with their top prospects at the beginning of the year, because there's a little less incentive to be bad. If you're just not guaranteed the second overall pick, if you are that bad or the first overall pick, if you're that bad and there's a little bit more incentive to, to be good. So the way that um, the service time manipulation works is that um, if I'm, I'm reading from from an article on the athletic. I think we'll we'll include this in the in the post um, on the when it goes on Royals review. Um, it's a it's a very sort of comprehensive list of all of the uh, the changes. But basically, um, you know, if your rookie um, that's so players with 60 service days service days of service or less who have rookie eligibility and are included in two or more of the preseason top 100 prospect lists put up by baseball America, MLB.com or ESPN are eligible. And if those players who are on those lists finish top three in MVP voting or top three in Cy Young voting, or they win rookie of the year, the team that they play for gets a draft pick following the end of the first round so we're talking you know in the 30s or 40s depending on how they define that that's a that's a pretty big incentive right if you are the royals and you have someone like bobby witt who could win the rookie of the year who could potentially um you know you know get mvp votes that's an incentive to sort of play him um and the royals probably don't need much incentive to play him they probably were going to play him anyways at the beginning of the year um but there's just less there's less incentive to sort of monkey around with with playing time. So all of that is to say, I think the fans also come out pretty well in this deal. Yeah, I think I I tried to get gauge some responses from from people when the labor deal came out, and I, I did see a couple. Well, small market teams got screwed again, and I think if you're a fan that was expecting like 
large systemic changes like a salary cap and huge revenue sharing. That was never going to happen. Like that's not realistically what was going to be on the table. Uh, it was going to be smaller changes. And I think some of the smaller changes we've seen are good for small market teams and specifically the Royals. I think like you mentioned, having some incentive to get Bobby Wood Jr. up now is, is an incentive. I think there are uh, things like the draft lottery where, um, you know, teams, small market teams are allowed to be in the lottery more than large market teams, which is kind of an interesting caveat. Like small, large market teams can't be in it three years in a row, but small market teams can. They can't be in it four years in a row. Um, the, the draft order for playoff teams is going to change a little bit. So, like, if the Royals make the wild card round, they'll be lumped in with all the other wild card teams that lost in the wild card round. But the small market teams will pick ahead of the large market teams. So the Royals and Yankees both lose in the wild card round. The Royals will pick ahead of the Yankees. So small things like that, I think, will help a little bit at the periphery. But but Jeremy, you know, what's kind of frustrating is that there wasn't big changes, and yet we had a 99-day lockout uh, that really jeopardized the sport. I think serious, you know, there's the sport was in serious jeopardy if we were going to start canceling, you know, significant parts of the regular season. Um, I look at all this and I ask. Was this all worth it? Uh, what, did, what was your kind of reaction to the labor deal and whether or not either side got what they wanted? So first of all, I just want to know why why not 100 days? Why <laughs> why did they only make it 99? Is this like, you, we avoided the 100 lost season. It was only a 99 lost season. You know, it's okay. Is it, is it that kind of deal? It was like the arbitrary the second... de- deadlines that kept moving, you know? <laughs> it's like Monday's a day. Yes. No, wait, I mean Tuesday. I mean Wednesday's a day. <laughs> The, the other thing I want to real quick say before I get into the deal is that uh, I predicted for people who've been listening to the podcast will remember, I predicted at the beginning, well, not at the beginning, but early on in this process that the season would be delayed, but they would play 162 games even if they had to play doubleheaders. And that's what we've got. Uh, so I just need to give myself a nice pat on the back because I usually get it wrong. Uh <laughs> But as for the deal, it's um, – I still – I wrote – you remember, uh, I think we talked about this last time. Uh, I wrote about the fact that I was – if baseball was going to try and cancel games, I was okay with that because I liked that the players were standing up to the owners and the the kind of uh, encouragement that that, that that gives everyone who is being mistreated by their employer. Uh, and – I still, I still kind of feel that way. I feel like we could have had a shorter lockout, but it would have involved the players giving in a lot more. Um, I think Matt mentioned that we went a long time where, where the owners barely moved off of their starting points. And then all of a sudden in the last week, they really did start to move. So if the players had, had given in any earlier, it would have been a, a much, much worse deal for them. And uh, and I do also agree with Matthew that uh, that the the deal I wish it was better for the players, but um, you know it, it could certainly be a lot worse, and I I would be upset if it was worse than this. So I I think that this is uh, this is kind of the I know no one wanted to sit here for 99 days wondering will baseball be played in 2022, but. I think this is still kind of the best case scenario that we really realistically could have hoped for is that the players didn't get completely screwed and uh, we still get 162 games. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, the players union made a, an interesting, interesting trade-off in that I think they kind of sacrificed the top end a little bit to get some more money for the little guy. So like 
they're you know they're pushing pretty hard to, to increase that uh, competitive balance tax threshold which really hasn't kept up with revenues at all like if you look at how revenues have gone up and how the luxury tax has, has gone up it hasn't kept up at all um, but they did get a substantial increase in the minimum wage up to 700,000 which by the way that, that hasn't kept up with revenues either but they did get a significant upgrade there and then the the money for the the guys in the first three years of, of, of service time that's pretty significant because a guy like you know Bobby Wood Jr under the old system he'd make six hundred thousand dollars and that's it um, which is still a good that, amount of money but you know go that, ahead and that addition that they managed to get um, as Matthew mentioned we got some new things in here that they can build on next time that addition of the bonus pool for the the guys on their rookie deals is a pretty big deal like it's not a lot of money now but the fact that it is now a precedent that they can build on in the future is is kind of huge yeah uh, as far as getting those those guys early in their careers paid something closer to what they're worth yeah like, i was just gonna say like bobby wood jr if he wins rookie of the year this year he can make three four million dollars in his first year which never would have been possible before and i'm really curious to see how that plays out in arbitration like does that how does the arbitrator look at those kind of first year salaries from guys that got postseason accolades or you know, post you know season awards um, how does that factor into the, how their salary increases? You're right. It does kind of set like a, a set a bar for salaries and how they're going to go up upwards for the for the younger guys. So, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting um, gains for the players. Um, I did want to talk about expanded playoffs a little bit. I think we talked a lot this a little bit before, Matthew. But do you think expanding from 10 to 12 teams, is that going to get some more teams off their butt to compete, specifically the Royals? Are they going to be a little more aggressive, you think? And maybe we'll tie this into what they – um, what they did this week, but um, is, is this going to be a little bit more of a motivating factor for teams to kind of spend some money and, and get uh, in, involved in the pennant race? I think so. I know some people think that expanding the playoffs to a certain point, think that it'll devalue the mm, and disincentivize teams to try to get better, which I suppose it could, but I think it's more likely that it, what it does is it opens the door for certain teams to say, Hey, we have a couple of additional spots this year. You know, there's, there's more, you know, more seats at the table. Let's try to get one of those seats. And I think that teams, not the Royals this year, but certainly the Royals next year, I think they could potentially, you know, go a little harder next year than they would. They might've otherwise, because there are 12 teams and there aren't 10. I think, you potentially get to the de- really devaluing the regular season once you start to get to a 14 or, God forbid, a 16-team playoff. Like, that's that's a lot. But going from 10 to 12, I think, could is kind of the sweet spot at the moment where it could convince a couple of teams to, you know, sort of get off their butts a little bit. Um, and it won't really impact other teams from trying to get better because getting better still, you know, gets you a better chance to win the World Series. What has been kind of discouraging is seeing a team like the Reds who – if this format had been in place last year, they would have made the playoffs. Um, but we've seen them kind of trade off a lot of their players. The A's are in a significant trade, you know, selling mode with Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, uh, Chris Bassett already gone. Talk Frankie Montas and uh, Sean Mania could be on the way out. Uh, Jeremy, it seems, I think it's a little discouraging to, you know, put all these measures in place in the labor deal and say, okay, teams should be going for it more, but then see a couple teams at least, uh, kind of go in the opposite direction and start a sell-off. Is this something that we're just going to have to deal with over the next couple of years, no matter what? Uh, yeah, I just, uh, at this point, I just don't think there is 
a way to force teams to try to compete. I don't think there's an incentive that we can that anyone can offer that will convince them to to try and compete if it wasn't already kind of in there and if they weren't already interested in it. Now I look at the Royals and I say Dayton Moore is always trying to compete, um, and and he and John Sherman really seem to be on the same page because uh, everyone was wondering is Dayton Moore in the hot seat and then Dayton Moore gets promoted. Um, so they seem to be kind of on the same page there. So I expect the Royals to try and compete. And as Matthew said, you know, oh, they're, they might be a little bit closer next year. So they might try harder. Uh, but teams like the Reds and the A's are, have always, uh, especially the A's, have always been uh, spending as little money as possible uh, and, and focused on the profits. And kind of the issue with baseball, uh, as far as competitiveness goes, is that the owners run the teams like businesses. And the current structure of the business of baseball is that it doesn't make sense to to spend a lot of money to win unless you're in one of those big markets and, and playoff money is just insane. Um, when the Yankees sell uh, a playoff ticket, it's, it's you know, costs more. It gets them more money than, than if the Reds sell a playoff ticket. So they're more incentivized to try and spend that money, and they're already making more money to begin with. Uh, whereas the Reds are kind of, uh, they're one of those revenue-sharing teams, so they kind of get money regardless of what their record is, and and they seem to be content to just take that money. And and unless a salary floor and, a like, a decent salary floor uh, gets introduced, they talked uh, early in the offseason about, like, an $80 million salary floor. I don't think that would drive too much more competition would be better than we have now but i think um until we get a real salary floor we're not going to actually see a lot of uh real attempts to compete uh unless teams uh can kind of pull like the rays or the a's had done in the past where they just got a lot of young guys or a lot of cheap guys uh that they're they're able to put together winning teams with those and then just kind of move on from there and and if everybody gets too expensive well we can't afford it got to make a profit and they trade them off yeah i think i should note that like making the playoffs just making the playoffs isn't exactly a financial winner for teams i mean it's great flags fly forever uh and if you make it if you go on a run it can be profitable but like I think David Glass would would frequently say that they lost money in 2014 to 15 because payroll was high and and you don't really I mean the the, the playoff the revenue from the gate isn't that great and under the expanded playoff system the two teams that are on the road for the wild card round they don't get any home games so it's not yeah. like you can really count on more money in the postseason now owners like the expanded playoffs because everyone gets um, more TV revenue. But just making the playoffs doesn't. Is, there's no financial incentive, I guess, for making the postseason. Right. Um, so yeah, I can see why. I guess the teams, like the Reds and the A's, unless someone forces them to spend money, I think they're just going to constantly be poverty franchises. Uh, you know, well, hopefully we don't have to talk about labor issues again for the next five years on this podcast, and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> uh, thankfully, we have actual baseball news to talk about, and for the Royals. You know, the, the the trading and free agent period opened up, and it was strangely quiet, I think, for a while. I think everyone just expected that teams were tampering, and, like violating the, the, the transaction freeze and talking behind others, you know, each other's back. But it was pretty quiet there for at least the first day or two. And for the Royals, pretty quiet for almost a week. Uh, finally, on Wednesday, the dam broke. Uh, let's get to the big news first. Zach is back. Matthew Lamar, I know you've got to be really excited about this. Woo. Zach Reiki back on a one-year $13 million deal. Now, he's not 2009, you know, Cy Young winning Zach Greinke, but 
uh, you know, he's 38 years old. His, you know, fastball is now around 90 miles an hour, but he's still a pretty solid pitcher last year for the Astros. Um, you know, 4.16 ERA, pretty durable. He's been always been a guy that goes out and gives you innings, 171 innings last year. Um, you know, still, I think he's a guy that can go out there and, and get the ball every fifth day. 219 career wins, 3.41 ERA. Matthew, what was your reaction to the Royals bringing Zach Greinke home? Well, there's a there's a lot to say here um, about Zach Greinke. Um, just on a personal note, it's 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 really fun to see him back. Um, you know, in 2009, um, you know, I I was a Royals fan at that at that point. You know, I I, I didn't grow up. Um, well, uh, I didn't move to Kansas City until I was nine, um, and therefore. You know, becoming a Royals fan took a little bit, and it was really Zach Greinke's 2009 season that really like turned me into like a hardcore Royals fan and it introduced me to advanced statistics. Because at that point, it was like, oh, he doesn't have the pitcher wins. I, I don't know if you guys you remember this whole conversation in 2009, which seems ridiculous now. Like, oh, he doesn't have the pitcher wins, but he's absolutely the best player. You know, the best pitcher, and he should win the Cy Young for X, Y, Z. Um, and so. Uh, you know, he, he really kind of, like, made me see baseball in a different way. And there are only, like, you know, for everyone, everyone has one of those players or a couple of those players where they, they watch them play and then something clicked and they saw the game differently. Um, and he's 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 the guy for me. So he'll all be he's all he'll always be one of my, my favorite players. Um, I'm not surprised that the Royals went out and did it. Um in part because I, when I I ran the the sim, uh, the SB Nation sim uh, as as the Royals, I tried to go out and sign him. And the reason why I tried to do it is is kind of I think related to the question that I asked both of you um, in like two or three podcasts ago when I said, "Hey, gun to your head, who's the best pitcher on the team?" And all three of us had a different answer. <laughs> um, that's why they went out and got him. They have very little, um, you know, they've they've you've got a lot of innings to pitch, right? However, there's not a whole lot of consistency or reliability among the current Royal starters. There's some definite upside. That's, that's for sure. But there's not really a guy that you can say, okay, this guy's going to go out and give you 180 innings and he's going to be pretty good at it. And the Royals didn't really have that with minor either minor just, you know, he wasn't very good last year, and Zach Greinke, even though he doesn't have it on his fastball, he's, you know, going to be a Hall of Fame candidate, and he is still excellent at location. He doesn't walk very many people at all. Um, he can strike out some people when he need to, needs to, and I think if you want to be the most optimistic about this signing, his home road splits uh, were really big last year, so he had on the road... I think it was something like a 3.65 ERA, um, and he was playing at Houston, which, if you'll recall, is just very tiny left field porch. So, um, you know, a place where you can hit a lot of home runs. And so putting Zach Greinke in a place like Kauffman Stadium, which plays more to his strengths as a sort of pitch-to-contact-ish guy... I think we we might be surprised at how good he is next year. Um, I think so. That's that's really the positive thing to it. Um, there is also the aspect of he has a very long and storied career, and he has a lot of things that he could tell the you know the young pitchers. I think he is a type of mentor potentially that 
a guy like Mike Miner, who was a bullpen guy and then became a starter later on in his career and then went back to a bullpen, you know, who kind of shuffled back and forth. And not really quite the same as Zach Granke, who had his struggles but won a Cy Young and has been an all-star starter for, you know, a decade and a half. So that is some unique mentorship that he can bring to the to the club, which I know that you don't think, you know, you, you can't put a, a number on it, right? And I, I get that, but also I think that some clubs having a mentor like that for certain collections of players can have very interesting and unpredictable returns on investment. You know, you think regarding Houston, um, what Carlos Beltran was to the, you know, the young players, uh, you know, Carlos Correa and everything. I think that Zach Granke could potentially be someone, someone like that, um, minus the trash can banging. I was going to ask, you mean he's going <laughs> to teach them how to bang on trash cans? Yeah. Or, you know, like James Shields teaching them to, uh, you know, <laughs> have a neon deer butt in the, in the locker room, whatever they had in 2014, <laughs> yeah. 13 and 14. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't think veteran presence is something you can predict. Cause you don't know how personalities will mesh, but it's absolutely something that, that exists. And if you can throw a Granky in there, who's been in numerous postseasons, uh, won a ring, uh, actually, did he win a ring with the Dodgers? I don't remember if he was nope. on one. I don't think he won. Yeah. He didn't win with them. Um, but you know, he's been with a lot of successful teams, and, um, yeah, certainly he has something that he could probably show some of those youngsters uh, in his own way. Um, you know, Jeremy, it is interesting. The Royals, you know, I'd heard this kind of whispered back in the fall, but I thought it was more kind of wishful thinking, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if Zach Grinke came back at the end of his career? And, you know, Matthew Lamar brings him back in the simulation, you know, as much as he can. Um, and it's interesting. More made comments today, like, they, they tried the last couple of years to bring him back, and the opportunity finally presented itself. I think it is interesting that he, you know, he could have gone probably, I mean, I, I read that the Cubs and the Tigers were after him, teams that were probably more of a contender than the Royals currently look look like they're, they're, they're right now. Um, we'll see it, you know, by the end of the year. But um, I think it is, is, is interesting. They tend to bring back these kind of guys. Like we saw Greg Holland and Wade Davis and Irvin Santana come back. Unieski Betancourt came back. Um, I, I don't know. Does it say something about this organization that guys want to come back? Joachim Soria came back. Um, and, uh, and what was kind of your reaction to, to Zach Greinke back in a Royals uniform? So my first reaction was, if you're not going to be good, you might as well at least be interesting. <laughs> you're putting on a show, right? And if you can't compete, then be interesting. And and we, we were interest, we've been interested in Bobby Witt Jr. We've been interested in Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, all these pitching prospects. But hey, bringing back the last Cy Young winner, that's interesting. I'm I'm all for this. I'm also a, a big fan of the saying, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. Um, the, he's not going to ruin this team. And he's not going to prevent them from making a signing next year if, like, just all these guys just suddenly go bang, 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 we know how to pitch. And, and Bobby Witt comes up and he immediately hits 50 home runs. Like, he's not going to stop anything from happening. So I, there's just no reason not to do the deal uh, for the Royals. Um, I do want to kind of put the brakes on on the veteran presence thing because I just think of my favorite Zach Granke story was uh, was Alex Gordon 
had a strikeout, I believe, in a game, and and Zach Greinke said, "Oh, come here with me, come with me," and he, he took him to show him a video, and, and Gordon thought he was going to show him a hole in his swing or something he could fix, and Greinke showed him a replay of Greinke hitting a home run and said, D- "Just do that." So if if that's the kind of like mentoring that Greinke's going to do for these young pitchers, I don't know how helpful it will be, uh, but. I'm I'm excited just to have him back and to to have a guy that uh, yeah he's not 2009 Cy Young Granky but he's he's reliable that we we can expect him to go out there every fifth day and you know give give a give the Royals a good good chance to at least compete in a baseball game uh, and, and like it's been said you know everybody else like they might pitch eight shutout innings or they might pitch two innings and give up eight runs so. Uh, knowing you have that guy can can um, the, the, I think the term I've heard is the stopper in the rotation can stop those losing streaks. Um, that can actually help the young guys so they don't get in their heads too much. Oh, we've lost twelve games in a row. Why can't I? Why, I've got to stop this. No, Granky's got it. You just focus on doing the best you can do, and uh, you know we'll, we'll get where we're going. So I do like that aspect of it, especially as far as uh, potentially mentorship goes. I think it's, you know, it's always good to have a couple guys in the staff that can kind of show the young kids the ropes. I don't, I don't, I think I always think that's a, that's a valuable thing to have, but ultimately it does come down to how does he pitch, right? He's, he's, you know, you have coaches to be mentors, you have players to play and Matthew, you know, he is 38 years old. Um, let's, let's point out some red flags here. He, 39 pitchers last year qualified for the ERA, ERA title, 162 innings or more. He had the fifth worst uh, FIP at 4.71. He had the fifth lowest strikeout rate at 6.3 per nine innings. Like I said, he only throws about 90 miles an hour. You're right. He does throw strikes. He's very good at um, at, at uh, uh, throwing strikes, had the sixth lowest walk percentage. But is there a possibility that 38-year-old Zach Greinke goes out there and doesn't look like, the, you know, not only doesn't look like the 2009 Zach Greinke, but really isn't a very effective pitcher at all and is more like Mike Miner. Is there a chance that maybe we see kind of Zach Greinke at the end of his career? Oh, of course. Um, yeah, and the, 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 that's no question. Uh, that's certainly possible. And, you know, if that happens, that'll be kind of sad. But uh, Jeremy's point, it'll be interesting. I would have much rather have Zach Greinke go out there and not be very good than Mike Miner go out there and not be very good. Uh, just because it, it, it'll be fun to watch the occasional times when Zach Greinke is, you know, on it. We can sort of all remember about when we were younger and didn't have back pain. So, uh, I it's yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I do think there is something to be said for the, like I said earlier, the home road splits where he was a lot better, you know, on the road. Um, and I think some players are you know, better at outperforming their underlying metrics. And Greinke is certainly one of those guys. Um, I just want to see like a 60 mile an hour EFIS pitch. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, all, that's what I want. Teach, teach, teach that to Brady Singer. Make that be his third pitch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Uh, you guys have kind of alluded to it that, you know, Mike Miner uh, was also traded today uh, and that kind of paved the way for the Greinke signing. Interesting trade. Mike Miner sent to the Reds. Uh, with cash considerations, about $500,000, plus the Royals pick up his $1 million option. 
They sent him to the Reds for reliever Amir Garrett, who will make about $2 million through arbitration. Uh, Garrett, um, not very good last year, uh, ERA over six, but he has been a good pitcher in the past for the Reds. Hard thrower, throws mid-90s, a left-hander, which they didn't have a lot of in their bullpen right now. Does miss a lot of bats. He has 299 strikeouts and 255 career major league innings. But he is a little wild, a lot of walks, 4.8 walks per nine innings. Uh, and like I said, he had a really, really rough year last year. Jeremy, what, you know, trading Mike Miner uh, and, and, and I, getting Amir Garrett, I mean, it kind of seems like it kind of solves two issues at once, you know, getting, helping the bullpen, but also saving some money. What was uh, kind of your reaction to the Mike Miner deal? So my first thought was it's not a big deal. Um, it's just swapping two lefty relievers, which Mike Miner is a reliever at this point in his career, whether the Royals want to admit it, whether he wants to admit it or not. Um, so there's two lefty relievers who kind of maybe could benefit from a change of scenery. Um, but then I realized the, the money, uh, changing hands, which is really interesting that the, the Reds have done everything they can to get money off their books. And then they pick up money by taking, uh, Mike Miner. And I'm not really sure, I guess maybe they think they can get some starts out of him. Uh, but I don't know why you would pay Mike Miner ten million or eight point five million or however much when they could have paid Wade Miley ten million, um, and they they just let him go instead. So I don't really understand this from the Reds' perspective based on everything they've done this offseason. But from from the Royals' perspective, it makes a lot of sense. They save you know eight eight million dollars is not a small amount to the Royals. Uh, as you said, Amir Garrett can help out the bullpen. He's kind of a veteran arm down there. Um, he's had a lot of success, or I guess I shouldn't say he's had a lot of success, but he's had success in the past. He's he's been very good at times in the past. He did have a bad year last year, but the hope is that he can kind of rebound. And for two million dollars, you're not you're not paying a whole lot for that rebound chance. And he's a big big hard thrower uh lefty that's the kind of thing the royals especially have looked for in their bullpen is hard throwers uh everybody does but the royals i don't know they seem to do it more with josh stomp and and hard throwers that have control problems they're more than willing to work with with josh stomont and uh the other lefty who threw 100 that they played last year i cannot remember his name yeah jake brantz so, and uh, Zuber is another guy who throws pretty hard. I don't think he hits three fit, three digits like the other guys, but uh, he also has control problems, throws pretty hard. Uh, so this is this is kind of their stereotypical bullpen arm. Uh, it makes a lot of sense for the Royals. The Mike Miner, uh, they signed him hoping he would be that that anchor to the rotation that, and he just ended up not being that. So replacing Mike Miner with Zach Greinke, even if Zach Greinke's bad, I think he cannot be any worse than Mike Miner was last year. So you've kind of set a baseline there and you could improve. And then Amir Garrett could improve the bullpen. So it, it's, a, I, the combination of the moves, cause I really do think they go together because they didn't announce the Greinke signing till after they'd gotten that money from the minor trade. Um, those two moves together make a lot of sense for the Royals, I think, uh, as far as the team is almost certainly improved uh, now that they've made those two deals. And th- that's what you want, generally speaking. Yeah, you're right. It's really a head-scratching deal from the Reds' perspective. I don't understand what they're doing. Like, they saved the money from just dumping Wade Miley, who was a very effective pitcher last year, and the yeah. Cubs claim him off waivers. So they've saved that money, and then they add back to their payroll with Mike Miner. 
and they didn't uh, get any prospects for him or anything. Yeah, so. I don't know if maybe they they thought Amir Garrett was a personality problem, and they were yeah. willing to pick up the money because of that. I know the big thing when Amir the trade was announced was everybody was sharing on Twitter the the brawl where he charged the pirates dugout by himself. So uh, you know the guy's got some fire going on. He's he's definitely willing to compete and and throw it throw his all into it. Well, it's funny. He also has a long-standing beef with uh, Javier Baez from the from when Baez was with the Cubs, and now now Baez is with the Tigers. Which guess what? Oh, they good. play the Royals nineteen times. Excellent. So uh, definitely... we could see uh, that flare back up now in a in a new location. Uh, Reverse Sweeney. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a, I think Garrett's an interesting gamble. I think you know because he throws hard. He, he has one of the best sliders in the game, which I didn't. You know I, that kind of surprised me. A guy that. Throws in the mid-90s with a really good slider, yet has had this many issues. Uh, and he had a lot of home run issues last year, which is not something I would really you know, um, expect from a, uh, a slider fastball guy. Um, I don't know, Matthew. Are you, are, you, uh, are you expecting Cal Eldred to be able to fix him? Or is he just maybe <laughs> a guy that you – I mean, they've got a couple years with him. He's not eligible for free agency for a couple years. Um, is he worth the gamble? Do you expect much out of Amir Garrett here in the next couple years? It's a really solid trade, um, and uh, like like Jeremy said, I, I don't know why the Reds would do it. I guess, here's my best explanation, Jeremy. If you're the Reds, Amir Garrett is probably not going to get you a whole lot, um, but what he could get you um, is one year of a guy who can just eat innings, and Mike Miner is that. He can, he can pitch innings. He's, he'll pitch 150 to 180 innings for you, and you can rely on that pretty pretty well, and they're going to need someone to do it. Um, and maybe Miner was their favorite person among the like equivalent guys out there on the free agent market. So you know that that's that's probably their perspective. Um, from the Royals' perspective, all of a sudden they're out. Their uh, bullpen is uh, their bullpen is hilarious now. Uh, let, let, let's let's take account. Let's see what we got. We got Josh Stama who can throw when he's throwing as hard as he can, like 101, 102. Okay. We have Amir Garrett. He can't throw 100, but Lefties who can throw 90 at 96, 97, 98, those guys are rare. Those guys are very rare. Oh, and then, by the way, you've got Jake Prince, who is a lefty who can throw that and faster. I think Prince has hit 100 before. Um, so so that's something. And then, in addition to that, they've got uh, Scott Barlow, who could throw, could throw pretty good. He's not super known for his high speed, but, again, I believe he's hit 100 before. And then you have Dylan Coleman, who... Uh, just kind of flew under the radar. I saw him live in Omaha last year, and it was it was it was hilarious. He was just blowing by by players. I thought he threw 101 at one point. Um, so they have all of a sudden five guys who could throw really really hard at the back end of that bullpen, um, and that's really interesting. I mean, obviously not all of them are going to work out, but I think the bullpen could, if it if it works, uh, you know, in in a, a pretty good outcome could be really fun to watch because you know you, you see teams like the Rays and the Dodgers come out with guys who could just throw 98 you know they just bring like four guys in a row who could, who could do that guess what the Royals can do that too at this point so I think the bullpen is going to be really fun to watch as far as Amir Garrett you know I don't really I I, I think he'll he'll be okay uh, he could be he could be he could be good and that's more than you could say for Mike Miner as a starter, I think Mike Miner could be a really good bullpen guy, but you know what? He's probably not. He probably doesn't want to do that, and that might have factored into why the Royals traded him. 
Yeah, they're usually like the kind of organization that does a guy a solid. Like, you don't want to be a, bull, a reliever anymore. Okay, we'll try to find you a spot, a, a, a soft spot to land. And you know, kudos to them. And and hey, it worked out for them this time. I mean, like, I don't know how you can fault this trade at all. This trade worked out wonderfully for the Royals. Um, you know, I think David Lesky's been on this drum all off season. The Royals need to take advantage of teams that are kind of doing dumb things, frankly. The Reds, and you know, not that necessarily dumb things, but cheap things. The Reds and the A's are are kind of in sell mode, and the Royals there's some 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 opportunities there to pick up some decent players for you know a fraction of the price, or you know, take advantage of a team that I don't know what the Reds are doing. I mean, like you said, like maybe they really like Mike Miner. They could have kept Wade Wade Miley. They could have kept Garrett. If they didn't want Garrett, they could have non-tendered him. I mean, they, and they'd be about the same point in their payroll. I just don't get what they're doing. I don't know if they understand what they're doing. Maybe something changed over the lockout that caused them to switch directions. But, you know, the Royals need to take advantage of these kind of opportunities. And kudos for them to them for or for seizing that opportunity and opening a, a spot up. Um, let's, let's, I want to take a quick break. Uh, when, I come, when we come back, I do want to talk about some more trade rumors involving the Royals. They may not be done. There's some talk about Frankie Montas of the A's, and then we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about how the infield's going to look this year. Hey, we're back, and, you know, before the Grenke news broke, there were some rumors from John Heyman and Ken Rosenthal that the Royals may be making a big, they may be pursuing a big trade. Uh, A's pitcher Frankie Montas is going to be part of their sell-off, uh, one of the many arms Oakland's trying to move. And the Royals were rumored to be one of the teams heavily pursuing him. And usually the Royals, they don't get in, you know, they're not usually that well connected to, to uh, players and trades unless they're pretty close to making a deal. So, I, you know, I, I, I'd wondered if the Royals were pretty close to making a deal. I don't know if the Greinke signing changes that at all. Although you'd think that Greinke is not really in the same tier as Montas, who, if you're not familiar with Frankie Montas, and I saw some people kind of, you know, calling him garbage. Um, he was a fantastic pitcher last year. Uh, 2020, not so good in a short season, but last year he really put it all together. Uh, won 13 games, 3.7 to 4 point uh, war, depending on which you use fan, fan graphs or baseball reference. 270 strike, 207 strikeouts in 187 innings, and he finished sixth in Cy Young balloting. Jeremy, uh, you know, it would probably take a pretty big package of prospects to get Montas, and he's only under club control for the next two years. The Royals did this before, you know, getting James Shields back in 2013. How do you feel about them making a big push to get someone like this now? I thought as the season was winding down that the Royals, because the Royals made that Shields trade a year before everyone kind of thought they should, a year before they were really competitive in 2014. Um, so I thought, you know, we're kind of in that same timeline. Might they make the trade? trade now uh and i've i've kind of come off of that especially when they did not do anything i think they made one minor league signing before the lockout everybody was kind of it wasn't as nuts then as it is now but there was a pretty good spree going with free agents um and the royals did nothing and so i i just can't see them like really dealing uh, multiple of their prospects in, in the way that it would take to uh, to get a Montas. I believe I saw a, a, a potential trade package 
that uh, one of you put together for Royals Review Twitter, and it included Asa Lacey and Vinny Pascantino and uh, Nick Lofton. And those are three guys who uh, some people are pretty high on with the Royals. I that's that's a lot to pay for a pitcher for two years, um, and he doesn't have the the playoff experience that the James Shields had. He doesn't have the nickname Big James, Big Game James Shields that I think kind of appealed to the Royals, uh, where he was like, "This is your guy." I'm, Frankie Montas is not at that level uh, as far as like mentorship goes. So I would, I would, I was really surprised to see them tied to him, and I would be surprised uh, if they made kind of a, a fair trade for him. Now, if they can fleece the A's like they did the Reds, uh, like it feels like they did the Reds for Amir Garrett, and and you know not trade his real value, then uh, maybe they will, and I would be pretty excited for it. But if they actually traded. Uh, the prospect value that it that makes sense to get him, I eh, I wouldn't I don't think I'd be excited about that right now, especially because they've got so many guys. We've been talking about this for a while. They've got so many guys that they need to give innings to. They don't have anybody they can rely on, but they've got guys they need to give innings to so they can figure out who they can rely on next year. And if you go and get a Frankie Montas and you've already gotten a Zach Granke, well that's less innings. That, that those guys can pitch and you don't you're gonna have a much harder time figuring out what you're gonna be able to do in 2023 when you might actually be competitive yeah i know well some people have kind of raised that point and said kind of the opposite view like well um you're gonna you have too many arms not enough innings not a 40-man roster spots pretty soon why not cash some of those guys in for one player that's more to more proven and established that can front your rotation like montas uh, and so maybe that's the direction they go. You know, I put that uh, trade proposal you were talking about, uh, not because I want to see that happen, because I don't think I would pull the trigger on that trade in particular, but just to show his value using the baseball trade value simulator, which isn't perfect, but I think gives you a, a, a decent approximation of what a guy is worth. Because I think some people are out there saying, oh, let's just trade like Brad Keller and, you know, Adalberto Montesi and like, you know, some prospect I don't like. And it's like, well, the A's are not going to jump on that offer, especially when there's other teams like the White Sox and other, you know, uh, the Tigers, I think, are in on him as well. You know, there's going to be a bidding war for him if he's available. And you can't just throw out a bunch of garbage and expect the A's to jump at that. So it's going to take some decent prospects. But Matthew, what do you feel about the Royals and their, where they are in the success cycle and whether it's time to make a move for a guy like Montas? And if Montas should even be that kind of guy that they should be targeting. Um, I would be okay if they if they made a trade for a guy like Shields who had two or three years uh, on his on his deal. I, I'd be I'd be okay at it. Um, I think the Royals could be sneaky good this year, depending on how their young players hang, their young players pan out. Of course, there's a large error bar there, and the young players could very well not be very good. Um, a little bit of a different situation compared to 2013 because we had two years of Duffy and Hosmer and, and Moose, et cetera. So they got their feet wet and they got acclimated a little bit. Um, a little bit more risky trying to do so before Witt and Melendez and Prada have even played an inning. But I, I kind of don't think that Frankie Montas is the guy you want to do that with uh, just because he doesn't have the kind of track record that you would kind of expect. Uh, last year, he was excellent. That's true. Last year was excellent. 2020, he was not excellent. 
And in 2019, he only played, uh, he only started 16 games uh, for the big league club. When he was, you know, there, he was very good. But this is not the same kind of player as a James Shields who had established a reputation as being an innings eater, as being a very good pitcher. Maybe not a great pitcher, but you knew what you were getting with Shields. I think there's an element of uncertainty to Montas that I kind of wouldn't want the Royals to pursue because there's plenty of other uncertainty that they have going on in their team. Um, but on the other hand, he'll be he'll be cheaper, and I, I don't like the idea of trading a guy like like uh, Vinny Pascantino, but I can see why the A's would want him. He sort of seems like the perfect A's player, especially since they traded Matt Olson. Um, you know, they might be looking for some first baseman, you know, kind of power. So, you know, and, and the Royals have Perez and they have Melendez and they have Prado. You know, I can kind of maybe see them kind of exploring Melendez or a Pascantino trade. But I wouldn't go for a guy like Montas just because I think there's a little too much uncertainty for him that there wouldn't really be elsewhere. I mean, like, he he just doesn't have as long of a track record as I would expect. I would go for somebody who was a little bit more um, proven, maybe a little bit lower ceiling, but I think that's the kind of player that the Royals should be going for, um, you know, rather than a guy like Montas who was, you know, really very, very good but very, very good over one full season. And do you really want to part with some of your prospects when you're up and coming for a guy like that? I don't know. I should point out in 2019, he he was quite good, but he did miss half the season, not with injury, but because he was suspended for uh, banned substance. So, you know, whether or not that's maybe that's a a positive or, you know, that's not as bad as an injury or whether that's maybe even worse. I don't know. That's up for you to decide. So, yeah, I get your concerns with the red flags. Um, you know, he's, he'd be, he's 28 years old. So I think still a guy that would be in his prime, but you know, maybe for the Royals where they are, maybe a guy like Sonny Gray, who the twins acquired recently, maybe that, that would have made more sense. An older guy, more established, maybe not as good as Montas, but it, it didn't seem like they had to give up that much to get him. They give up their, their the 2021 first round pick who was a late first round pick chase Petty. Um, but also a high school kid who's, you know, a long way from the big league. So, um, you know, the Royals, probably have someone like that they could part with in their organization um, that they could have gotten, maybe they could have gotten, gotten gray, but, but you know, really, I think they're probably a year away from making that kind of move. I think um, let's see what we have. Let's see how the pitching shakes out a little bit. Maybe you get more of these guys uh, that make it than you expect. And you don't have to go pursue a pitcher. Um, maybe outfield is where you really want to target, um, you know, your resources as far as trading prospects for a proven player, um, which that could be a possibility with Oakland too. Maybe they go pursue Ramon, Loriana, who's a um, uh, a guy that also was suspended for performance enhancing drugs at one point, but uh, has been a very solid player the last year or two. Um, so yeah, I I don't I don't expect this trade to come down, but it was really interesting that their name was so publicly attached to Montas, and that it does kind of seem like the Royals are tired of losing and they want to make a big move. And they and remember we have a new general manager technically, JJ Piccolo. I don't know how much he's calling the shots uh, with or without concert with Dayton Moore, but. I think there is this kind of effort, concerted effort in the organization that, okay, we need to kind of speed things along. It's, it's that we, we've put, you know, muddy, we've kind of been in the cellar a little too long and it's time to, to start winning. Uh, you know, I did want to talk a little bit about how the infield was going to shape up this year. Um, we, we've had some, some practices now. Um, I haven't seen the spate of 
you know, he's in the best shape of his life articles about Adalberto Mondesi yet, <laughs> which I would have thought would we, we'd get. But uh, Mike Matheny did say he looked pretty good at shortstop, said that he is our shortstop. What was really interesting is he said Nicky Lopez would be at second, Bobby Witt Jr. at third, and Witt Merrifield presumably would be in the outfield. And Matthew, you wrote an article about how Witt Merrifield in the outfield was not exactly the alignment the Royals should be looking at. Can, can explain what you, why, why you felt like Mary Witt is kind of miscast in right field. Yeah, so ultimately, we think Bobby Witt is probably going to be pretty good at third. Um, depending on who you read, there are some people who think that he's not really as good at shortstop as as sort of others. You know, there, there's a little bit of disagreement over how good of a shortstop he is. But I think moving him over to third, I think, kind of quiets those those fears. He'll he'll be a really good defensive third third baseman. I think I think that's that that's a pretty solid bet. He's going to be a good defensive third baseman. We know that Mondesi is in is a very good defensive shortstop. He is. One of the fastest players in baseball. He's arguably, when he's healthy, the most dynamic player in baseball. And now that's not to say that he's the best player in baseball, but the most dynamic. You know, he's as likely as he is to hit a towering home run as he is to bunt single and then steal second and third and just effortlessly. Not really a whole lot of players who can do that. Um, so he's, we know he's a very good defensive uh, shortstop. We know that Nicky Lopez is, a, is an excellent second baseman, right? Um, Nicky Lopez sh- probably should have won the gold glove in 2020. You know, it, it is what it is with the gold glove. So we know those, those three are, are good at those respective positions. The problem is that Whit Merrifield is a, is a very good defensive second baseman. He was nominated for the gold glove last year. He's a bad right fielder. The numbers bear that out. He's just not very good in right field. Part of that is he doesn't have a, have a good arm and right field, unlike left field, you kind of need to stop players from, you know, running to third base. And I don't know if I've ever seen him throw out someone at third base from right field. I just think that his arm is so much of a limitation there. And also he's just he's lost a little bit of a step and he's just not he's just not as good at right field as he is in second base. And that's that's no real knock on him as as a as a player. You know, it's extremely difficult to play multiple positions in Major League Baseball well. Like that's very very hard to do especially when one of those positions is the infield one's the outfield but all of that being said is is wit is is a bad right fielder um and he is a good second baseman and putting him in right field basically if you look at it over the course of the season and you take an average of uh, defensive run saved and use an ultimate zone rating uh drs and uzr um, the difference between putting um, Whit Merrifield in right field as opposed to second base for a whole year is about the difference between Lorenzo Cain's like career yearly numbers in center field versus an average center fielder. Like that's the gap that we're talking about between Whit Merrifield's second base production and his um, right field, you know, production in the outfield. So really. It'll work itself out. I've been saying this for a long time. It'll work itself out. Someone's going to get injured. It could be Mondesi. It could not be, right? I mean, Merrifield's 33. There's a, there's a lot of things that can happen. Some, you know, There's no guarantee that uh, Bobby Witt is going to be any good, any good at, at first blush. You know, there are plenty of prospects who end up well who have to go back to the minors. Um, you know, Billy Butler, you think of Mike Moustakas and Eric Hosmer. You know, these, these players all struggled at the beginning. You know, that could happen with Bobby Witt. Um, some 
it'll work itself out. But I think that the Royals should be putting Whit Merrifield at second base, Nicky Lopez at shortstop, Bobby Witt at third base, and Mondesi is a utility guy. He plays and he fills in, and he plays a little bit of DH, plays a little bit of second base, plays a little shortstop, plays a little third base. Um, that should be his role, considering how often he's probably going to be playing. And let's be honest with how he has earned the spot. I don't think he's earned the shortstop spot when you have the best shortstop prospect in baseball and a guy who put in a better season at shortstop than Mondesi has on a Nicky Lopez. So that's really what it comes down to now with, you know, if you put Merrifield in the outfield, you're still going to have a great defensive infield. But, you know, you could have a guy, you could have a situation where Merrifield is taking up, say, Kyle Isbell, who by any accounts is a really good corner outfielder. You know, maybe there's not a spot for Isbell um, if Merrifield is in right field. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of, of trade-off that, that you're getting there is, you know, Merrifield's just not very good right fielder. I think Merrifield would probably be a better left fielder if they didn't have uh, Andrew Benatendi. You know, I think Merrifield would work out a little bit better in, in left field because his arm limitation wouldn't be that big of a deal. No, the point I think about you saying he that Montesi hasn't really earned the position. I, that's the exact point I made today on a radio spot. Like he, he's he's a talented player, but he hasn't been on the field. And even when he's been on the field, he's been you know a league average bat, maybe a little less. Um, that's been very inconsistent. You know, great one week, gone for the next three. Um, and I don't think that's worth displacing, like you say, two really good defenders in Nookie, Nicky Lopez and Whit Merrifield off their position. And also, like, what happens when Montesi sits? Do we move them? Bell, you know, are we constantly shifting these guys back? And look, I think Whit Merrifield's a gamer. I think he'll do whatever it takes to help the team win. But I don't get the impression he particularly likes playing right field. Uh, I think he would. I don't think he particularly likes moving around. I think he wants to be the regular second baseman and be there every day. Um, I think it's some of it's a pride thing. Like when you're kind of a player of his stature. You are a second baseman. You, you know, I don't think you want to get stuck with that utility guy moniker. Um, so, you know, I, I think it makes more sense to have Montessi be that utility guy, rest him a couple times a week, have him in the mix in right field because Hunter Dozier's probably going to get some starts out there. Kyle Isbell, I'd like to see get a lot of starts out there. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. Jeremy, how would you kind of handle Montessi this year and where to play him and how the, how the alignment would, would match up? I, I would handle it probably by – trading with Merrifield a couple of years ago uh, but that's not really an option um, all we have to do is build a time machine and yeah uh, and then figure out how to convince Dayton more um, which I think that might be harder than the time machine thing. <laughs> um, yeah there's there's it's kind of weird. I was thinking about the outfield situation and how there's a log jam of outfielders somehow. And none of them are that like a lot of other teams would look at all of them and go, none of you were starters. What are we doing? Um, and it's kind of weird that the Royals, uh, they have, they have these, these four really good infielders. And so they've decided to just kind of put one of them in the outfield where, uh, again, the other thing I think hasn't been mentioned about Whit Merrifield is while his defense is much better at second base, his bat plays much better as a second baseman than as a right fielder, too. Generally, you would expect a right fielder to hit a lot more than Whit Merrifield is going to. And I'm sorry to say, at 33, 
I don't think he's getting better. <laughs> I think he's. He, he, you might expect him to be very similar to last year, but you probably should expect him to decline a little bit. And already last year, he was not keeping up his end of the bargain if you were going to start him in right field. Um, so it's, it's just kind of a mess where the Royals have... Uh, at, by my count, they have five guys. Uh, six, if you count Ryan O'Hearn, who is somehow still on the roster uh, and can play some right field, plays better right field than he does first base. Uh, six guys who don't really make... Uh, Andrew Benintendi makes sense as a starter uh, if you've got a couple other really good outfielders. But as the best outfielder of this bunch, it's, it's kind of iffy. So six guys that you're trying to find room for and and it's you're kind of just wondering why you're trying to find room for these six guys um i i don't know what the answer is this makes as much sense as anything else to me i guess it is interesting to me that after bringing adalberto mondesi up last year and saying you know what nicky lopez he's had shortstop that's his spot and you're gonna have to play third uh, Adalberto, and then they said this year they're like, no, we're going to move everybody around to accommodate Adalberto again. Um, it's a little bit weird to me. I wonder if it might be one of those uh, positional things where uh, they think he might hit better. He feels more comfortable as a shortstop, so they think he might hit better, because I know he had uh, like a eight-game stretch in between injuries where he was just he was worth he was so valuable he hit home runs stole bases and then when he came back he was kind of iffy and I, if they think that that was because he was playing out of position and they think Nicky Lopez and Whit Merrifield can maintain their hitting while moving them around uh, as opposed to Mondesi then maybe that makes more sense uh, maybe that works I, I, I it's hard to say what the Royals are thinking here um, other than yeah, it, it, as has been pointed out, it'll work itself out. People will get hurt, and and guys will have to move around, and and it'll all work out. No, I, I think both of you are right. Like I think these ten things tend to work themselves out. I will say though, I I put my tinfoil hat on today, and I said, yeah, I think they're hyping him up because they they're showcasing him for a trade. Like I I I I, I don't I wouldn't say that it's likely he gets traded, but the fact they're kind of saying okay, he's our shortstop after last year saying. He's, he's a utility guy that we can't count on anymore, and I know they walked back those statements a little bit, but, you know, they put him at third base at the end of last year. They kind of said, okay, maybe he can be a little more um, healthy if he plays the outfield, and now they're like, well, he's a shortstop. I think they're sending a signal out to other teams like, hey, do you need a shortstop? Do you, are you going to miss out on Carlos Correa? Do, would you like a plan B? Here's uh, here's Adelbert Demondesi, who's very inconsistent, but maybe you'll get something out of him that we couldn't. So it wouldn't surprise me to see if he gets traded. I'm not saying, like, again, I'm not saying it's likely, but... Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Can uh, they put him in the freaky Montas deal? Straight up, yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be a fleecing of the A's uh, on par with how the Royals fleeced the Reds. Uh, and I would, if 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 uh, if the Royals did that, I think I would build a statue of JJ Piccolo at that point because uh, <laughs> um, he is a, truly the greatest general yeah, manager in baseball. Green skin and antennae. <laughs> yes. Uh, after he was responsible for the lockout, he saved uh, baseball in Kansas City. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, hopefully we'll have much more uh, to actually talk about the Royals on the field here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, certainly, I'm glad to have, be able to take, talk about baseball with you guys again. Did you guys come up with a Royals review review? I know we kind of put this podcast together at the last minute. Were you able to come up with a Royals review review this week? I've got one. Right, we'll start with you then, Jeremy. All right. Yes. Yeah, I'm on. I'm ready for you this time. All right. 
yeah, I just finished the Netflix Lost in Space reboot on Monday night, so that's what I'm going to recommend. Uh, three seasons of television. I think it's like ten episodes a season. Um, as a fan of the original Lost in Space, the 60s TV show, obviously I was not alive, but I did watch it on uh, reruns on Sci-Fi and Nick at Night. Um, and then I'm also a fan of the 1998 uh, reboot movie. Uh, just I'm a fan of everything Lost in Space. Um, and there are three very different interpretations, but where they all come, where they all start and where they all end is that this is a family, uh, the Robinson family. It's basically uh, Robinson Crusoe in space. Uh, and, and so they all start from the same place of this is a family um, where you know, there are conflicts because there's always conflicts in families, but they, they all genuinely love each other and they're going to work together to find a way to succeed. And, and they're going to be a family. And, uh, to see that, uh, kind of reinterpreted again for the Netflix series, I thought they did a brilliant job of reinterpreting it. Um, you know, it's, it's very different in a lot of ways from, from the original TV series. It's not episodic. It is very, you know, uh, follows the the modern television pattern of being very, uh, what is the word that is escaping me? Serialized. It's very serialized. You know, each episode leads into the next, um, and and they had to put some characters in some different positions to make it all work. But I really feel like they did a great job, um, and I I cannot for the life of me find a complaint about the show. Uh, the special effects were fun. The the characters were fun. The situations were fun. They uh, one of my biggest complaints about TV shows, especially modern serialized shows, is that they they forget to take breaks to let the characters kind of exist and, and you know not be dealing with a crisis for five seconds. And uh, there are so many crises in this TV show, but it never feels as overwhelming as some of the other shows that I have had problems with. Uh, so. That's that's just what I'm going to recommend is is if you're a fan uh, out there of the original Lost in Space show, I still think this has value for you. You just have to accept going into it that it is not going to tell the exact same kind of story. That's some IP that I would not have expected has spawned a movie and a reboot, uh, but it has. Uh, so the, the original, I always got the impression, and I never watched it, but the original always gets kind of uh, lampooned for being kind of campy. Is yeah. the, is the, the, the I, I, these this version is more I guess yeah, serious and this, this this is much more serious. Yeah. Um, I mean, being lost in space would be kind of a, a terrifying thing. Yeah. Uh, you go to all these worlds and you don't know what's going to happen. And and the original was kind of goofy. That was kind of the the style of TV shows at the time. Um, if you look at, you know, anything from back then, there's a lot of goofy stuff going on. <laughs> Star Trek has, has been, was very goofy at times back in the original and has mm -hmm. matured into a much more serious show. So or the, or I, the original Batman. Big, yeah, the original Batman. Absolutely. Um, so just to, to see that, uh, kind of maturation, it didn't have the in, in, interval steps and obviously it's not as big of an IP as Star Trek, but to, to see it get a really kind of honest and, and, and fun it's really fun somehow uh despite being much more dramatic and much more tense uh interpretation has been very nice very cool matthew what do you have for us this week so this this is going to seem like a cop-out but i truly mean this uh my rose review reviews is about uh the sport of baseball um and <laughs> i am so glad that we have it back um because 
I was at my wits end trying to come up with damn topics uh, <laughs> to write about. And uh, I, I absolutely, I just, we've gone through a lot of off season, you know, lately uh, between the additional 2020 off season and the fact that the roles haven't been in the playoffs. So we get an extra month of off season every year, um, you know, for the past, you know, until since 2015. Um, and then the, you know, extended, you know, uh, 99 days, uh, almost 100, as Jeremy said, um, of, of lockout that just not only delayed spring training, but also meant that there was no news for three plus months. I'm just I'm very glad that that baseball's back. Um, and I. And, uh, you know, looking forward to going seeing Zach Granke in number 23 uh, throw some EFIS curveballs uh, at the Kauffman Stadium this year. So, uh, baseball, I'm, I'm very glad. I think anyone listening to this would, would probably uh, share share that uh, recommendation as well. Oh, yeah. And, and one, one more thing. People like I lately um, or towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the lockout, I wrote a lot about labor stuff. And I worry that people think that I like writing about labor stuff. <laughs> I would much rather not write about labor stuff uh, just uh, as an insight into, um, you know, what I like to write about. I had an idea about this Whit Merrifield thing at like 1130 yesterday. And then I like sat down to write it at like midnight and I wrote it in like 45 minutes or whatever. And. That has n- never happened with labor negotiations. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've never thought like, man, I really want to write about this thing. Um, so, so, so glad baseball's back. I totally agree. I, two weeks ago, I think I hit a wall where I was like, what the hell am I going to write about this week? I got nothing. I am tap dry. And I, I mean, it was like a writer's block. I just had, and then, and then like a day after the, the, the deal was struck, I just had like 15 ideas. I'll be, like, oh, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write about that. And then, Fortunately, the Royals, you know, they wrote it. They made some transactions. I had even more to write about. So, yeah, it's just funny. Like, it just, like, it's like the, the dam broke and all these ideas came out. Um, my Royals review review this week is similar to yours, actually. It's mine's a sport of basketball. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I love baseball. It's my number one sport. I dabble in other sports. I like the NFL. Um, I like college basketball. I, I would not even qualify myself as a casual NBA fan, but I know the teams. I know most of the, pl- a lot of the good players. Um, but we took a trip to Denver for a um, ski trip that was two years delayed. Um, but we stopped in Denver for a night and went to go see the Nuggets Raptors game. And I think the NBA is pretty polarizing in Kansas City. People love it or they think it's like the worst thing ever. Um, and we got upper level seats, which everyone's like, oh, NBA tickets are so expensive. 16 bucks each, which wasn't, you know, it was a great view. Um and it was actually, it's, it's a sport that I don't watch on TV because I do find it not great to watch on TV, but in person, it's a, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, I, that's what I've heard about the NHL as well, which I've never been to an NHL game, but, um, in, in sports in person, I think it's always going to be better. Um, with the exception of maybe the NFL, just because it's loud and, um, uh, you know, it's not as comfortable as being at home, but, um, I, we had a blast. I took my two kids, two of my three kids, um, and we had a great time, um, it was the Nuggets lost to the Raptors who are just happened to be my oldest son's favorite team for some random reason. I don't know why he latched onto the Raptors like right before they won the championship, which seemed like kind of bandwagon ish, but 
actually wasn't. So anyway, we had a really good time. I'd highly recommend at least checking out an NBA game for yourself to see if it's uh, worth uh, your time. But uh, we had a good time, and uh, you know, baseball's still my number one sport. But but I may be following the NBA a little bit more. So my my hottest take regarding sports is that the NBA product is the best sports product in in the United States, and that includes and that includes baseball. I like baseball a whole lot, but the NBA is just so much easier to sit down and watch, um, in my opinion. Um, it's it's a really great environment. The, the season is really fun, um, and it's so fast, and there's always action going. And unlike, you know, college basketball where, like, Sometime this year, like Iowa State put up like 30 points in in a whole game. In 40 minutes, they put up 30 points in a Big 12 game. And that never happens in the NBA. Like, sure, you have to deal with what seems to be a greater population of divas in the NBA than anywhere else. But that's part, that's uh, part of the good thing. I mean, that's like there's such soap operas. It's yeah. like wrestling almost, you know? Yeah, I, I, I really love the NBA. If there was a Kansas City NBA team, um, I, I would be extremely happy. I'd go to a lot of games. I, I really like the NBA, and I don't really have a team that I can root for. I mean, kind of the Cleveland Cavs because of varying reasons. Um, I, I you know, used to live in Cleveland, um, and I've got a friend who's just really into the Cavs and, and the Browns, and so, you know, like, why not? There's not, like, a close team. But, you know, eh. I, I enjoy watching it a lot, and um, it's one of the sports where I'll watch like playoff games between two random teams. Where I, I don't really do that even for the NFL or or Major League Baseball. I generally don't watch random random playoff playoff games, but I I will watch for the NBA because it's just it's just so fun. We'll get on that John Sherman or, or Patrick Mahomes. Bring a team to Kansas City and give us uh, give us some more sports to watch. Well, that will do it uh, for uh, us on, on baseball this week. Uh, thanks to Matthew and Jeremy for joining the podcast this week. And from everyone at Royals Review Radio, we'll talk to you next time. Hey!